Hi, I'm John Fallon. And I'm Tobias Dobby. And welcome to the Good Game Podcast. This is a podcast with two teachers talking about how games are changing education for the better. So Tobias, here we are, episode three. How are things going yeah. over there? I'm good, I'm good. Um, yeah, finally getting into the like the grooves of a new school year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, things are settling down. I'm good. Yeah, I think... Fall is coming in, which is probably my favorite time of the year, actually, in a weird way. When, because when, when you only when you only have indoor hobbies, uh, like <laughs> this makes it more more like more kosher to just stay indoors and and play video games and do nerdy stuff. Yeah, does does Norway have like that whole what is it like Hige or is that Sweden? Hige, no, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a probably a Scandinavian thing actually. Um, the but the Danes are the ones who mostly use the words Hige. Mm. Uh, the the Norwegians call it kus. Kus, what does that mean? Yeah, kusle. Uh, oh, isn't it, this is nice. This this is kusle. Uh, it's um same idea. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty much the same idea. Mostly, I don't know. I don't. I haven't. I I have some Danish French, but I haven't heard them use that word that much. Um, maybe it's very like a particular thing. But I, I my assumption is that it's pretty much the same thing, uh, referring to the same idea in um, all Scandinavian countries. Yeah, being like warm inside, playing board games, good book. Yeah, the, the, it's it's uh, um, there's an, there's definitely a, tr- a trace of like intimacy to it. You have to be like, um, if it's, yeah, I think intimacy actually the right word, correct word, because it's uh, it's it's like a a mood that settles in and and everyone is aware of, so to speak. Um, and at some point, someone will say, "This is this is cosy," like, <laughs> especially if there's some like. Older folks there, <laughs> like referring uh, without it being awkward or anything. So, yeah, this is the this is the big cool time of year for me. Yeah, um, yeah, it's start, just starting to cool off a little bit here. I mean, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of teachers, especially in um, in the U.S., like if if you don't have air conditioning in your room, those first few weeks of the school year are are killer. Um, and yeah, I'm, we're, we're, we just had like our first cool day of the year and it's nice when you don't have to have that blaring fan on and mm. kids are, you know, having heat stroke, falling asleep in class, that type of thing. So we're starting, we're starting to get there, which is nice. Yeah. But, uh, we have a, we have a, a great conversation today with, uh, Kelly Dunlap, who is, uh, one of my favorite people out there talking about video games and mental health and all things mm. psychological with that. And uh, when Tobias and I were getting the podcast going, um, I mean, she was definitely one of the names I thought of first, especially to talk about like, okay, like what does the science really say about um, video games and games, both on the good and bad side? Because I think whether you're blaming video games for all of the world's problems or saying that it like instantly makes you a genius, there's definitely some misconception. So I was happy to talk mm. with her and just kind of get all of that uh, cleared up. Um, yeah, which I think awesome. I was. Bis- I don't remember what I was doing when you uh, were uh, when you guys were talking. So I I, I wasn't. Um, for those of you listening, I'm not in this this uh, the talk with John and Kelly. So I, but I did the uh, but the, I did the editing for the episode. I mean, I was just enjoying myself so much when I was sitting editing because the conversation you you two had was um, touching upon so many different but still uh, and related and important subjects in such um, clear and concise and approachable and accessible manner. There was no jargon or anything. It was just talking succinctly and and, and interestingly about important stuff considering video games. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome conversation. But before we get there, actually, there's a couple of news stories that popped up over the last few days that are... uh, very uh very on point for the for today's topic of talking about games and mental health and research um and one of them was from the connected learning alliance which is um uh, a group uh that heads of the connected learning summit which i went to to uh, a year ago two years ago i can't remember when the mm. first one was um at mit and you that's know, the one that took over for that's the one that took over for for uh, GLS. Yes, it? yeah, it was kind of billed uh, as um, uh, kind of a joining of three different popular conferences. Uh, the one, from my perspective, it was the replacement for uh, the Games and Learning Societies uh, conference, which uh, Tobias and I have both been to, and it was you know a big a big day on the calendar for game based learning nerds. 
uh, of all types. Mm -hmm. And then that eventually folded for a lot of complex reasons. Uh, but this was not kind of seen as, you know, picking up that mantle. So it was fun. But anyway, they, they fund a lot of research and they do a lot of different things. And they uh, posted a, an article on September 16th. Uh, so a few days ago from what we were recording. And among other things, it basically talks about how they have been really digging into the research out there about screen time and the Internet and devices because there's been all kinds of anxiety um, mm. and you know people saying things good and bad about what it is. And, and the, the research, as Kelly will tell you in the interview coming up, a lot of this research is still very new. So there's a lot of kind of assumptions being made. Um, but they, they basically reported that in their findings um, that it's you know, people shouldn't be panicking. A lot of this like smartphone is addicting and destroying kids is um, what I would say, you know, is new, new media bias. Like it's something new. Mm, yeah, kids yeah. are using it. Kids are, are, you know, always a problem for every generation. So we always point to whatever they have in their hands um, mm. as the issue. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing to see here and move on. But, um, you know, one thing they pointed out is uh, the following when they said, we see high rates of high school graduation and declining rates of things like teen pregnancy, alcohol consumption, and violence. So most kids are doing well, even in cases where young people seem to be struggling a bit more, like with mental health, we don't find evidence that smartphones are to blame. People really want to blame the devices, so it's important to understand what the real effects are. And that's something that I've always kind of come back to, which is, you know, if this is the, one of the least violent generations, one of the least, you know, <laughs> likely to use drugs or alcohol, teen pregnancies yep. down, like then what are we pointing to to say that video games are you know ruining a generation if they seem to be mm. in, in a lot a lot of the traditional markers you know doing better than we did when we were their age yeah i think i i struggle i, I sometimes struggle with the idea of always blaming technology or like you said new media bias because i don't really ascribe that like high, large ability to affect people to in order for cell phones to actually cause that that this so this uh, supposed harm that some people are claiming that they are doing because i think reality is much more complex than that for one single device or one single medium to have such an impact on a whole generation i don't think i think they're yeah but that that kind of that kind of swings both ways in a way where there's a large discussion about whether um tablets and iPads should be in schools in Norway or no or not because some people they're basically building on much of the same sub themes of screen time and so on um and I always think thought find this like peculiar and and, and weird in a way because I mean the iPad isn't a tool in itself it's a, like a meta tool it's a tool that you install other other tools on. Yeah, it's a platform. Uh, maybe use it use it as a uh, you, yeah. You can uh, the iPad itself. I mean, you can use it as a cutting board. Maybe not a very good one. <laughs> it's too slippery. <laughs> maybe. Um, but so, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 so reduc reduc reductionist and and simplistic uh, mm -hmm. that I, I think it's it's very counterproductive. Yeah, it's it's. I guess what I would like the conversation to move past is move past this kind of default assumption that it's like um like sugar or junk food where it's like sure you can mm. use it but you always gotta like keep your keep your eye on your calories and keep an eye on the clock and and keep it to a minimum when it's really mm. more about f it's food and yes there's good food and there's bad food and you know there's screen time that's useful to you and there's screen time mm. that's not that useful to you depending on what you're mm. doing with it yeah i mean uh, to take to like there's take jogging for instance i mean jogging is good until you wear out your knees if you jog too much if you do too much jogging on hard asphalt with bad shoes oh yeah i tell my wife all that all, all the time i mean that's what <laughs> that's what she did in college she uh, yeah. right before college yeah. she she was running too much and and actually ended up you know you know injuring her legs right before she was going yeah. for her running scholarship yeah so that's a that's a great example yeah. And the yeah, because the point that I'm, I think I'm, try, I'm trying to make is that context is everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's very little, like very few inherent qualities to anything. I think that isn't in the context in some way, because and 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 true, I've, I I can kind of understand that people uh, don't pay too much attention to, attention to like 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 the quote you uh, just read out about um, high rates of 
high school graduation and something. But because those are like slow moving, positive development, which mm-hmm. is very hard for people to see. It's 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 probably even difficult for researchers and science and researchers to see. Um, but like this, your your kids with like burying their noses in their phones, that's much much more apparent and, and immediate and easy to relate to in a way. Yeah, I mean, I was talking with my students the other day. We were talking. I was showing them because uh, we're we're reading uh, the graphic novel Pride of Baghdad. So mm. um, I basically was giving them kind of a history primer on the 2003 uh, invasion of Iraq, and so we were watching. Uh, President Bush's, you know, um, television announcement uh, of the invasion beginning. I was explaining to them, like, before smartphones, and I I stopped for a moment, I realized, I'm like, wow, it actually wasn't that long ago. You know, how quickly (laughs) news has changed, where Mm. you would need to watch TV or turn on the radio. Now when news happens, you know, it's, you know, a a buzz in your pocket, and you are Mm. are engaged in the story right away. So there's not that sense of um, kind of gravitas and you know kind of dramatic buildup that there was before smartphones and that was what yeah 10 years ago when the first iphone came out 10 11 mm, yeah what are we on i now? think it's i think it's even more than that i think i think it's 12 13 i'm not sure yeah no and i no no say around 10 around 10 but yeah um but uh what was the saying yeah just the, te- yeah, the technology uh, changes very very fast yeah it does and it's um was I'm I'm I am not like a technology determinist. I don't I I think I don't think it's only technology that the technology that affects the social. I think it's both goes very much goes both ways. I think that if order to make sense of this, we have to see how technology and society and the social interacts in a way. Yeah. So we can't own yeah, and what different contexts and what kind of kinds of people are doing diff- what kinds of things with what kinds of technology and so on. Um but at the same time of course we have to like recognize some of the problems that new stuff brings with them. I mean say so, oh, yeah. uh, s- sitting still is not good for you for one thing. Uh, and I I think most people can rec- can relate to the idea of or, like how how distracting notifications can be. Oh yeah, um, that's I mean, that, a... that's something I'm, I I I've I've started to kind of informally when, when I do like a a unit about the societal effects of technology by reading nonfiction and science fiction, a couple different things. And one mm-hmm. of the things I do is I kind of like, all right, guys, like here are some like best practices that you know that people find, and yeah, things like trimming your notifications down. And mm-hmm. like not sleeping with your phone nearby, like that's things that some kids kind of get intuitively, but some kids definitely don't think about for sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've read somewhere. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure it's true whether it's true or not. But but even if it even if it isn't true, it could be like a good point point to keep in mind is that if you get distracted the brain can take as much as like 20 minutes to get really really back into the groove so to speak no yeah i remember seeing that that research yeah i told them that too that when you switch gears you are actually like slowing your brain down you can't you can't Mm. do it it's it is not good um yeah so again being aware of 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 what's there is important but that's why i like this kind of research Mm. and think it's great because you know these reactions do need to be research-based and and as kelly will say in the interview a lot of times those early phases of research they're they're either reductive or sometimes they're just wrong um or they're interpreted by the by society at large in a way that the original research uh wasn't really doing so always kind of Mm. updating our understanding of what's actually being shown in the sciences is important um yeah yeah, I mean, if, as soon as we're talking either or, like for, like completely for or completely against, then we're not having a productive or construct, constructive discussion. I think. Yeah, rarely. Which is, rarely which, which is yeah, I wish, it, and it's 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 going that way. Sadly, in Norway, concerning tablets in schools, it's either only good or only bad. Hmm. Yeah, and it's and then you lose. That's then you, by then you've lost you. I mean, you've lost touch with reality. I think. I just think like most things, people just want a simple solution, you know, when it, especially when it comes to mm. very uh, emotional things like raising children, you know, whether it's your, your own children yes. or, or, or putting them in the, in the school environment. So I think that's why, oh, yes, of course. you know, I, I don't know if it's the same in Norway, but, you know, in America, there's often the kind of the sarcastic response of like, oh, but think of the children, you know, that tends to, <laughs> you know, be the, a, a real trigger for people. And they just kind of want to immediately simplify it. Just like, just tell me what I should allow in my house or not allow in my house. So, mm. um, and yeah, and I understand that temptation. We all, we are all also come to it in some ways, but 
um, you know, when we're making educational decisions that could affect kids for, you know, years to come, you know, on the scale of millions, um, you know, Mm. we gotta, we gotta look at the facts first. We can't just trust our gut. I remember I asked my, my mom a few, uh, some time ago when, asked so I, I weren't you like scared i would like be corrupted by all the video games i would play i was playing and like be like it go crazy at some point and she and she immediately said no of course not i mean i have more faith in my child and like the moral integrity of my child to believe that he could be like corrupted by just a video game or something i mean hello <laughs> yeah i should talk to my mom about what she's thought about it i was looking back i always assumed that she didn't care because yeah, like everything else was going fine. Like I like I didn't get in trouble in school. I also had a huge reading habit. So I think it, mm. I could have seen her intervening like if I stopped reading books. But for me, it was not like an either or. Like I played a lot of video games, but I read a lot of books. So I think for and, yeah, same. and I played outside. So, you know, I think for her, it was just one thing that was just part of the solution, um, you know, of, yeah, of, I, of what I wanted to do with my time. And I... I... I think I I believe that most parents are like that. Yeah, I might be wrong though. Oh uh, yeah, we'll see. But you know, like like a lot of things too, it's 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 the vocal minorities that tend exactly. to to dominate the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in schools, because you know they're the ones who tend to get up and you know um, storm into the principal's office and that type of thing. Yeah. Anyway, so speaking of emotional reactions in schools, another thing that Kelly and I talk about a lot in the interview was blaming video games for violence of all kinds of different types. Now, she does a great job of saying that it's completely bunk, and I won't I won't spoil it, but you know that's uh, essentially uh, pre- a fairly scientific, you know, established understanding here is that no, playing video games does not turn you into uh, a murderer, but there was a more recent study, uh, and I believe I mentioned him in the interview by Patrick Markey, uh, who is like one of the foremost scholars of kind of understanding the reality of, of, of you know, video games and psychology and whatnot. Um, and they did a pair of studies that were just recently published in the, uh, the psychology of popular media culture. Um, and it, it, kind of, again, goes over a lot of some similar ground, but they also looked at how the media reported around video games. And one of the things that they noticed is that there was a big difference in the reporting of video games being, you know, a possible cause for the violence based on the race of the shooter. Um, And quoting from it, um, both of these studies showed that we see interest and discussion of video games of white perpetrators, but we are more comfortable looking at other explanations for other minority groups. Uh, That's from James Ivory, who uh, is at Virginia Tech. And essentially, the finding found that when you were a a white perpetrator, they seemed to need to look for a more arcane excuse, if you will. Mm. And when it was a, a, a shooter who uh, perpetrated violence that wasn't white, they seemed to be able to go to more, shall we say, you know, pedestrian explanations of violence. Um, mm. So again, it's just another reason to run very far away from this, you know, um, mm. narrative about video games and violence. It's, be- it, I mean, the way I see it is, is, that you know when when it's a white kid who people mm. look at and be like oh that's a normal adjusted youth mm. they think okay well something weird must have happened yeah he's been corrupted yeah but i, I think the, the problem with this is that when we're blaming video games we are again talking about the uh how technology affects us and if we are t- affected by technology then it's not really our fault in a way it's something mm. else more sinister or something kind of like out of our control that we should gain control over the problem is that we if they're not blaming video games when the, it's uh perpetrated is from from a minority group then we're suddenly blaming the social some social structure or some uh something else which i i might be wrong but i am guessing that the people who are blaming video games for like whatever a white perpetrator has done are also white yeah, I'm sure I, I, I haven't looked into the details uh, of the study, but I wonder if I would totally agree with you that I would see a similar link because they're they're seeing it as, um, 
you know, a commentary on their in-group that, and they're like, yes. well, you know, I'm normal, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm a white, you know, 40 something, you know, person from the, the suburbs, you know, there's, there must've been some type of corruption, but if it's yeah. someone from an outside group of yours, you're like, oh, well, no, that they're from the inner city or they're, you know, they've been exposed to gang violence or, you know, you know, I think it's called, I think this is called the no true Scotsman fallacy. Yeah, I think yeah, I've heard that before. Mm, I can, no true Scot, no true Scotsman will would have done such a thing. Mm-hmm. It's like people not wanting to admit that yes, the the in group I'm part of can also do horrible things. Yeah, and or then... people from like rather people from members from that in group can do like it's 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 easy to blame something that you don't have anything invested in. It's very difficult to uh, try to think that the problem might be in the way Alex in something that you are actually connected to. Yeah. So, you know, and what it boils down to is that, you know, you're just reaching into your basket of implicit biases. And then when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, blaming, you know, violence, especially youth violence on video games, it seems to kind of be demonstrably a mix of a few different biases. So, mm-hmm. um, like I said, it's, it's time to move on from that because, um, yeah. Kelly, as you will hear uh, Kelly tell you in a few minutes, it is um, just scientifically not supported. But um, yeah. yeah, so speaking of that, you know, Kelly is, is coming up and she's done some great work. She, uh, she works with I Thrive Games, which is a, an organization I highly recommend people check out. They're doing a lot of great work with uh, games and learning and social emotional learning and mental health. Um, and actually, more uh, more recently. Uh, after we did the, the interview, Kelly was featured on an Apple News story um, talking about how video games can help people uh, deal with uh, grief and, and grieving and, and other um, kind of, um, you know, kind of problems with mental health. So uh, she is doing uh, great work. So um, we'll, we'll include that link in the show notes as well. So she is definitely the person I turn to whenever I see anything about mental health or psychology in, in the news about video games, I, you know, I, I check it through her filter first and, um, you know, because she, she, she knows what she's talking about and she does a great job of, of making it easy for, for, you know, for people like us to understand. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, coming up soon, uh, you'll hear, uh, my conversation with Kelly Dunlap. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, today's tribe member is Kelly Dunlap, the director of mental health research and design for iThrive Games, uh, which is an excellent organization doing great work around games, learning, and mental health. She is also a psychologist, game designer, and the chair of the Mental Health Special Interest Group for the International Game Developers Association. She has been featured in the New York Times, Variety, PAX East, and Extra Credits, just to name a few. She is the first person I turn to when I have a question or want an informed take about anything related to mental health, psychology, and video games. Kelly, welcome to the Good Game Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I know. I've been very excited to get you to sit down because when it comes to games and learning and video games, especially when we talk about schools and kids, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of opinions out there. Um, many of them informed many of them not informed and uh you often see tweets stories um you know things shared on on social media or 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 said from person to person when it comes to the research around video games but i feel even within you know that context um there's a lot that people kind of need to get figured out and maybe think that they know that might not be the truth um so let's just get right into it violence in video games you hear it all the time. Violent video games make you violent. What's what's really out there about this? Uh, it is completely unsubstantiated, and like the, the short version is, it's it's not true. There is um, kind of a, a cognitive quirk where if we see something and we think it's true, and it seems like it should be true, then we just accept it as truth, and that's really the case with violent video games. Um, but yeah, confirmation bias of of you know what we expect to see, we tend to see more of it. But it's important to keep in mind that the conversation that we've been having around 
violent video games as being dangerous is 30 years old, 40 years old at this point. It's it's as old as games itself. Um, you know, there were concerns that Pac-Man was too aggressive. The the very first outcry for violence was a game called Death Race. I think I want to say it was 1978, 1979, where you had this pixelated car that drove around and you supposedly ran over alien creatures. And of course, this is all like, it's black and white pixelated. But there was an outcry that this would encourage people to become dangerous drivers and to try and murder people by running them over with their car. So it's an incredibly old, old, old controversy. Um, and it just, it just won't die. But the underlying fact is, no, there's nothing related to playing a, a violent video game and having actual violent behaviors happen as a result. Okay, so where do you see these links coming from? Because there's always a link that somewhere says, oh, well, it increases aggression. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, always a couple of links that get brought up a lot uh, when people try to substantiate it. So have those, that, that type of research, is it being wildly misunderstood? Is it, has it been debunked? Um, what, what is actually, you know, out there in the research ecosystem about this question? So there's kind of two answers to that. The first is the way in which we measure aggression when we're doing psychological research. And the other is the researchers themselves. So I'll start with the, the methods. Um, it is unethical to encourage participants to go hurt people in the real world. You know, we're not allowed to do that as psychologists. Um, and so what we do to measure aggression are things like the hot sauce test. So in one of the, the classic, um, you know, violence in video games examples, what they did is they had uh, people play a violent video game and then they were to assign a, a hot sauce that a Confederate would drink. And they figured that the person who had just played the more violent game gave the spicier hot sauce, therefore violence, therefore aggression. That's one example. Um, another one is when they'll give you like a fill in the blank. They'll give you a couple letters and, you know, maybe it's like M-O-R blank. I, I don't know. It's like a, a fill in the blank. And so basically they're checking, like, do you say the word murder or do you say the word mother? You know, because and then a, a, ostensibly, if you say murder, you therefore are more aggressive. So lots of little things like that, uh, you know, blasting loud noises, just approximations of aggression or aggressive thought, none of which actually transfers outside the lab. Yeah, I, I think the the sound one, it wasn't, a, I remember someone bringing this up. I think it might have been Matthew Farber where it was the sound one where it wasn't even turning up actual sound. It was like imagining if you yeah. turn, turn up. Okay, yeah, so it's even weirder than I thought. Yeah, I mean, obviously we can't blast loud sounds at people because that's unethical. Um, so usually it, it is either pretend you would or there's like a confederate in another room where you might think that you're doing it, but you're obviously actually not. Okay. And so our, our ability to measure like transfer of aggression into the real world is super limited. Although I will say there is a really um, seminal paper um, by Chris Ferguson, where he looked at juvenile offenders. So people who had been incarcerated for violent crime. So like, okay, here's actual aggression in the real world. And then once you controlled for um, the factor of abuse in childhood, there was no relationship between violent video games and the people being incarcerated. So said another way, when people have adverse experiences, they may act aggressively. And when those experiences occur, you would see that happen. And when they don't occur, then there is no relationship between video games and, and actual physical violence. So important study. Yeah. Shocker. Actual real life violence might be more of an indicator than yeah, pretend figure, violence. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then the second part would be just the researchers themselves. Like there's a really famous study. It was called Boom Headshot. I think it was released in 2012. <laughs> real which scientific. Yeah. Which basically was like, oh, well, if you play um, video games with guns, you yourself become a better marksman, if I remember that right. Um, and that was written by Bushman. And it has been retracted, as has lots of his work, um, because of statistical inaccuracies, methodological flaws. It's kind of the professional way of calling BS mm -hmm. um, on a study. So a lot of what is held up is like, this is proof, has been retracted, or is um, people are very critical of it for methodology. The methodology itself, I could go on forever. Um. <laughs> yeah, when I hear stories like this, and this is even outside of, of the video game research context, it's almost like we need like some type of like uh, repository of like research results and that, you know, and if, and if they're not in 
in that category, then like it's automatically flagged because it seems that like the sticking power of you know certain really flashy results like can stick around for years after it's been formally debunked or or disqualified. But you know, it, it, there's no real way that, that that really gets done except for you know the inner circle of scientists who are actually doing that. Yeah, and I mean it's it's a problem at the core of research itself of things that are flashy, things that are fearmongery, that's what gets research funding. Like it's a lot easier to get funding and attention for, oh my god, video games are corrupting our children than yeah, no, they're not really not. We want to study how they're like not doing that. You know, that's not nearly as attention grabbing and there's really no sense of urgency behind it. So everything from getting grants to, you know, even just publication biases you know, refusing to publish null results. Like, hey, we tried to study this. We found that there wasn't an effect is way, way less likely to actually get published than something that reports to have found a, a connection. Yeah, actually, it's, it seems like a classic media bias of you know, a bias towards drama and, uh, you know, attention. Um, okay, let's go to the other big one because most people who are probably active or semi-active in this area, but, you know, about games and, and, and their psychological effects, you know, uh, use in the classroom or whatnot, they definitely heard when the World Health Organization put game addiction, um, you know, as, as something that I don't remember what the exact qualification was, you know, worthy of study or on the, on the list of psychological it's um, included yeah and um so we'll, we'll take a look at that so you know but what about addiction so if we you know say, okay violence not there but it's certainly addicting i mean i think just about every teacher who's listening to this right now would say, would agree that you know i don't think i've heard 30 seconds go by in my classroom without Fortnite being discussed watched or, or played by my students you know so aren't aren't they addicting I mean, look how much they're playing them all the time I'm pretty sure if I had like one wish, other than like wishing for world peace or to like get rid of my student loans, <laughs> it would be to remove the word addiction from every context that is not actually addiction. Like I, it just, it, it like is nails on a chalkboard for me every single time I hear that because the word addiction has actual meaning. It has like clinical connotations when you're talking in a mental health space, addiction means something. Mm -hmm. When you come out of that space, addiction means nothing like okay I'm so you should uh, define it what, what is like the real clinical definition for addiction so it is the psychological and physical dependence on a substance so it's like really really short short and sweet so there, there is some difficulty because there is the idea of a behavioral addiction the only quote-unquote behavioral addiction is gambling at the moment hmm. and that just became a behavioral addiction in the latest dsm it was categorized as, as something else in the previous versions and it's like super controversial, this idea of behavioral addiction, um, because with a chemical addiction, you know, alcohol or, you know, what other drug of your choice, there's an actual chemical involved that we can track and trace to certain reward centers in the brain that have to do with addiction and where how we get dependent and how we become reliant on them and can have withdrawal symptoms like physical and psychological. But gambling is this weird kind of gray area, which I do think opened the door for this idea of gaming addiction, that you can become actually addicted to video games, which like <laughs> is, it's so much to unpack. But basically the idea is that addiction is a term that we currently use to describe any kind of behavior that is done frequently that we as a society don't approve of. Mm-hmm. And we, we co-op that terminology. Think about binging Netflix. <laughs> binging is a clinical term. For, for taking in too much, but we use it like it means nothing. You know, I'm addicted to my coffee. I'm addicted to my smartphone. I'm addicted to podcasts. You know, it, that term just doesn't mean anything until it does. Like, and, mm -hmm. now, and now people can't separate what is actual addiction versus just the commonplace parlance of, of the term. Yeah, it seems like the, the, the boundary between very popular and addiction is, is a lot farther apart than people seem to want to admit with with anything that's out there yeah i mean there's a lot of things we do to excess but we don't call it addiction you know for example overeating we don't call it food addiction like we don't we don't blame the food you know we look at the underlying psychological constructs that are going on um you know if sleep addiction we don't call it bed like we don't call it bed addiction, right? <laughs> it's, it's absurd uh -oh. when you put it in any other kind of context. Cas casper's in trouble <laughs> 
Yeah. Any other context, it is absurd. Like, we would never say somebody had a reading addiction. Oh, this person's reading a book and they don't ever stop reading. We don't we don't see that as a bad thing. So there, there's something just about the zeitgeist of the time, our cultural media panic around video games. Um, and the decision to do this, I do think, is at best premature and at worst, like, incredibly harmful. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's 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 just it comes off as classic new media bias. Like you can go back and pick anything, and you can find almost the exact same rhetoric around it. You know, with with books, like you brought up. You know, novels were seen as you know these addictive monsters that would drain you of all your empathy. You know, yep. and and you know, and now we look back at that and go, that's ridiculous. But it's like, well, you know, it's, it's the same thing that people are saying now with as much evidence. Um, so I, it's just yeah. It, you know take your take your pick and it seems that we can go back and point to it but um people like to point to easy solutions i mean that's that's my take at least that you know it's oh, much, I, I absolutely agree yeah it's much like harder it's, it's much harder to address i don't know you know the thirty thousand gun deaths in america with the things that are actually causing it so much easier just to say oh you know well they they play a lot of fortnite i mean taking it a little bit more of a classical approach like I think about um, Columbine, you know, the Columbine high school shooting. The one thing that people remember most about that, other than the fact that it was Columbine and people were killed, was that the two people who who perpetrated that act played Doom. Like that has stayed in our in our consciousness. And every single time there is a mass tragedy like that, it whether or not the person played a video game always comes up. And it's just something that that won't be let go, even though there are a million other factors that are better indicators, like previous aggression, you know, <laughs> little yeah. things like that. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the fact you, you, you take, you know, a, a young 20 something male. Yeah, chances are there's going to be an Xbox in their room, you know, it's yeah, you know, but there's also pants in their room. There's also, you know, TV in the room, you know, so it's it's just just classic correlation is not causation kind of kind of thing but yeah um, the baseline bias of like if you don't know how many people play doom and then all you hear about it are these two people who did play doom and then they went and committed like an atrocious act you're just gonna assume that that's what doom players do and as opposed to like a lot of people play doom a lot of people play video games and don't act that way and that there are much larger societal things that address that issue. But it's so much easier, like you said, to say, oh, it was the video games rather than, you know, systemic inequality and poverty and, you know, an entire generation being destroyed because of a recession and climate change and, you know, lack of access to education and resources. Those are all things that are contributing to aggression and what we see. But guess what? Those are hard. It's so much easier to just point the finger. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I want to uh, read a quote from the recent Game Informer article that, that uh, you were uh, quoted in. Um, and I think it goes to, to something that we've been talking about, um, where uh, you're talking about uh, you know the research that's actually out there. And you say, quote, the research base right now is relatively young, relatively new, so there's lots of problems with it. The way the studies are carried out, the way they select their participants, the way the information is analyzed, and the way the information is presented, it is really problematic, end quote. So let's dive into this a little bit more, because I feel this is a huge sin of journalism in general, is which is you see it every day. New new study says, you know, research says, but you know, the methodology and the context of the research, good or bad, rarely gets uh, you know explained in the article. So, how does this play into the uh, our perception, but also the research efforts themselves around video games and violence and addiction? That that you know these topics that that are making the news all the time. I mean, that, that's a huge, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. So explain it right now in 10 seconds. Okay, cool. So um, fear sells. Mm -hmm. I guess that's my, that's my 10 second answer. <laughs> my, my tweet length answer. Um, but I mean, one, as when studying any kind of new phenomenon, the first things that we find are not necessarily going to be what's true. It's what we found. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back to our previous conversation of, you know, fear sells and it's a lot easier easier to get clicks. It's a lot easier to get attention when you're saying the house is on fire rather than the house is okay. 
And I mean, I think it's easy to blame media and journalism for that. But then you look at the underlying structures of why do they need that? Well, they need the clicks because they need revenue. We no longer support independent press. Like the, the journalism as an entity is having a really hard time keeping up with the current way that we consume information. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that it takes like so much longer to get across a truth than it does a lie, you know, because a lie will spread like wildfire or, you know, something that conforms to our beliefs about the world, going back to confirmation bias. We just accept it without thinking about it. And it's so much harder to to challenge those ideas that are established. So one, again, at a systemic level, you know, if we want good reporting, then we need to support journalists. We need to support outlets that will take the time and read an article and really dig into the depths of it and to have experts on their staff and to deliver that information in a way that is accessible and irregardless of how many likes or click throughs or time on page that it has. And then of course, you know, there's the actual, (laughs) the actual games themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what can, you know, before we completely, you know, remake journalism, what can, you know, listeners do in the meantime to maybe, uh, kind of stop themselves or if they see, you know, kind of one of these, you know, alarmist stories or, or links being shared, like what can they look for to be like, wait a minute, pump the brakes that there's, there's more to this. Anytime I read a headline that seems too simple or too easy to be, or too good to be true, I'm instantly suspicious. <laughs> um, like human beings, we are incredibly complex. We still don't really understand everything there is to know. And we probably never will about the human mind and the brain and the psyche and the interactions between self and others in the world. You know, we can take good guesses, but we certainly don't, don't know everything. And so if it's something as simple as violent video games cause violent behavior, Mm -hmm. that is super, you you should be skeptical, skeptical. Mm -hmm. You should be curious. Like, how is it that something could be that simple? And maybe in some cases it is, you know, for example, if you eat too much food, you will gain weight. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty direct correlation. But then that also ignores all the other possible issues as to why you're eating, like stress or thyroid issues or hormones or, you know, so even in something that we know has a direct relationship, there's so much more under the surface. Like there's, there's never an easy connection. And so if they're presenting one, if they're pretending that there is some kind of easy connection, whatever it's talking about, be very skeptical. Yeah. And I feel like this is something that, that I get to a lot whenever I'm, I'm in these conversations. And it, in, I think food is a great comparison because most people would not make that same leap, you know, about food addiction or anything like that because they're like, oh, well, I've had cravings before. I understand that, you know. You, know, you don't just open up the fridge and, and, you know, shovel the entire thing in your mouth and become food addicted because it's something that we've all experienced. But video games, you know, are, are something that many parents just like, oh, I don't know them. I don't play them. So you have these alarmist kind of stories that kind of fill in the gaps. Um, and, and that's why, you know, my first advice to everyone out there is always like, OK, if you don't understand games, like go watch your students or your children or your neighbors or whatever and learn a little bit more about it. And then usually, it, you know, hopefully that barrier then begins to erect itself because, you know, it's just, it's just a vacuum space of, of ignorance that, you know, it's once the easy narrative gets in there, that's, what, that's what's going to go in. I mean, one thing that I always like to to point out to parents and teachers is that, like, I'm I'm happy they're concerned. I'm happy they're asking these questions because the one that means they are thinking about the information that they're taking in and they have concern for the children in their life. Like, that's a really good thing. I want you to be attentive and aware and concerned. The problem is that the information that is conveyed is largely sensationalistic, moral panicky, and mostly incorrect because let's be real especially if you're a parent like i am if you're reading something you're probably only getting to the headline maybe the first sentence before <laughs> something is explodes or something is way too quiet and you have to go investigate i've got 20 minutes till pj masks is over <laughs> exactly exactly and so like i i pa- Parents and teachers are doing their best. And so I think for us who are on the inside, it is our job to get this information out there however we can to support them and to to show them that like we do care and we hear them and we want them to feel confident and safe in their kids using games. Um, and also important, like when to notice, like w- I guess another way of saying it, like when to be concerned, 
Because mm-hmm. I'm not saying that people can't abuse games or that they can't use them to excess. Like that certainly can happen the same way as, you know, if someone exercises so much that they pass out, like that's not healthy. That's not good. If you breathe too much oxygen, you pass out. You know, if you drink too much water, you actually die. So anything done to excess is excessive. Um, but, you know, there there are some things that you can you can look for in your your child's play or your partner's play. And like being able to share those kinds of resources and information my hope is that it empowers parents and partners and teachers and educators to maybe be less afraid because they actually know what to look for, what should be concerning and what is just like normal play. Yeah. For example, I mean, this is definitely a whole other topic and podcast, but there's one area that I am really worried about with addiction. And that's like, you know, with like the, the loot boxes and the gambling mechanics, you know, in games. And that, that is something like, Oh yeah, that that's real. Like, well, we'll, we should pay attention to that but let's not let it bleed into other things. So yeah, there are areas of concern and things you should pay attention to. I, to- I totally agree. But yeah, it's, it's all about sifting between um, what to pay attention to and whatnot. And that's, that, you know, that's more difficult. It's um, so funny. I was on a panel at PAX about our loot boxes ethical. And there was like a really nuanced conversation around like, okay, well, what is gambling and what is problematic about gambling? And are loot boxes gambling? Are they not like this super nuanced conversation that we're trying to like debunk? And then Rockstar's like, hold my beer. We're going to put a casino in GTA. Like, come on, guys, really cut me, cut me some slack here. It's not gambling. It's surprise mechanics. Surprise mechanics. Oh, my God. Oh, that's like, that's the gamer version of fake news. Oh, I- yeah. All right. And, yeah. Anyway. All right. So let's move on. So, all right. They're, <laughs> they're not, they're not turning us into violent monsters or, or addicted, but, you know, video games are for learners. You play them by yourself. You'll lose all your empathy and all your social skills if you play video games a lot. The normal, well-adjusted people are are outside. So where, where does the research actually fall on these kind of social skills and, and things like that? So I, starting with personality-wise, gamers are completely normal human beings with the exception of the domain of being open to new experiences. And gamers are actually more open than like norm populations in terms of being willing to try new things, to learn new things, to explore and to have curiosity, which, you know, as a gamer makes total sense. Like you got to learn new mechanics, you got to learn new button mappings, you got to learn new consoles and systems and constantly adapt. So in that case, you know, point one to to the gamers. Uh, Two, the vast majority, vast, vast, vast majority of people who play games do it for social reasons. So either they're playing couch co-op with someone next to them, they're playing with somebody online in a cooperative way or competitive way, which is still social. And even if they're playing a solo game, say like Skyrim, for example, or Red Dead Redemption, they then go to forums or they go to school or they share their experience on social media in some way as a way to connect with other people who are also taking in this this art form. And so the idea that uh, someone who plays video games is just a social, awkward loner with no friends, I really like it's so cliche and it's so wrong. And I, I wish I could just like snap my fingers and make people stop thinking that. Yeah, I'm wondering like where like. It'd be interesting to go back in the history and like the media perception and kind of tag where that came from. Because if you go back to like the earlier part of video games, I mean, what's more social than an arcade? And that was like the golden age of when like video games go mainstream. But at some point it changes. Um, I guess it's when it goes to the consoles and into the basements. I I don't know. Like it's because you look at it and the whole history of video games has social aspects. But that, but that particular stereotype seems to be incredibly sticky. And it's funny because I think about like the history of pinball, you know, which preceded video games. And there's actual um, like concern that pinball halls cause kids to congregate in like mobs. <laughs> and the same thing happened when pinball and video games started appearing in arcades together side by side. And then that just kind of got handed off to video games too of, you know, these kids today, they're congregating in, in public spaces. They're being a nuisance. Um, there's actually, a, I have a clip of a newsreel from I think 1984 
possibly like it's some kind of dateline thing where they are literally saying like they're harassing the elders because they're in these large mobs around the you know the shopping marts and you know <laughs> it's the idea like okay they're too social they're congregating and they're having too much fun they're too together and then i think you're right you know after the video game crash in the early 80s and there was the shift to home console i'm guessing that is where maybe it got started um but i don't i don't think it's ever been true like i i grew up playing video games um late 80s early 90s i was always i was playing with my brother i was, would go over to my friend's house to play like there was almost always the social component um so yeah i would love like an anthropological dig into the origin story of the the lone video game player and my guess would be that it comes out of those people who were playing video games at the very start you know they were early adopters and nobody understood like what they were doing. And so there might've been some kind of social pariah, some kind of outcast otherness because they understood this technology that nobody else did. But that is just my guess. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so let's, uh, are we still some time left? Let's take a look at the other end of, of the spectrum. So if, if video games aren't a plague descending upon the young, they certainly are fun, but they're frivolous and a waste of time compared to practicing your algebra or going outside and hitting a baseball. So they definitely don't have value in a learning setting. It's the sound of my soul, like suffocating. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I know that's not you saying that, um, but that is something that comes up a lot is that they're, they're frivolous and they're a waste of time. So first of all, for my educators out there, we all know that play is the work of children. I do believe that Fred Rogers said that. Uh, yeah, he definitely has one like that. It's definitely, there's multiple versions of, of a similar thing that plays the, the work of childhood. And I can, I can tell you with my three-year-old, his play is work. It is serious oh, and yeah. it is all about learning and development. And that's, you know, when we're in a space where we're free from like terrible consequences and we're not made fun of for failing, which is what happens when you're in a play space. Mm -hmm. Like you, you learn so much more because you're not afraid of making mistakes. You're not afraid of trying again. And you're, you're not afraid of being made fun of. And like th this idea that games are frivolous. Well, one, if they're frivolous, so what? Like recreation is recreation. You want to, uh, my personal favorite is when someone's a big sports fan. Mm -hmm. They're like, they like wear cheese on their head and paint their bare stomach, you know, green and yellow hey, in Wisconsin. Packer fans alone. My sister's one. I feel like I can do this. Um, but I mean, I, but I am an, I am an owner of the team. I will defend their integrity to the to the death. So I'm not I'm not casting aspersions necessarily. What I'm saying is that Fair we enough. see that, and we see that's normal. We literally see a grown man not wearing a shirt, <laughs> in body paint, wearing cheese on his head, screaming at the top of his lungs in a stadium of you know tens of thousands of people. No one bats an eye. We actually celebrate it. We see them as dedicated. As passionate. As passionate. Yeah. Like, so that's okay. Yeah. But someone wanting to, and that's kind of like a performative, societally acceptable form of adult play. Mm -hmm. And that's allowed. But you get an adult picking up a video game and all of a sudden there's all these consequences of they're not serious enough. They're childish. They're immature. They're lazy. They probably have no friends. So it's not games because obviously sports are mm -hmm. games. And we, we revere chess masters. We think that they are studious and brilliant. And we, we think that they're amazing. We honor Olympic athletes. Like we just saw the Women's World Cup. These are all games. Mm -hmm. Some of them are physical, but chess certainly isn't. Uh, you know, we, we, we value all these things. But there's some reason when it comes a recreational game that it loses its value, even though we know that play throughout the lifespan is critically important. Uh, you know, Brian Sutton Smith has the really amazing quote that, you know, the opposite of work isn't or the opposite of play isn't work. It's depression. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could embody that more, then maybe we could challenge that idea of games as well. One, if we want to challenge games, it's frivolous because we can say that they're they're fun and they're learning and they're, you know, they're skill building. But I think there's also a really important conversation to have about. So what if it is frivolous? Like, who cares if it's your recreation time? Like the Puritans aren't here anymore. We don't need to work from sunup to sundown on the farm. Like we have extra time. We should be enjoying it. Yeah. It's, and I, I think it's any parent, you know, you look at a young kid and they can see it because, you know, I have, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and, and I definitely have like this bias as a parent. I'm like, oh, you know, it's those moments where I'm giving her a time out. 
and I'm talking to her that she's like really learning about these different things. And no, it's when she's playing and she's all by herself and she's, you know, doing all these different things. I'm like, oh, that's that's when you're actually figuring things out. Um, you know, not when I'm, you know, directing it myself, even though I like to think that I am because we all like to feel like we have agency. But um, I, like a really great example that I love to use is think about how you learn to ride a bike. You don't sit down with a manual, right? You don't sit down with a textbook and read how to ride a bike. And, you know, someone can tell you how to ride a bike, but that's only going to do so much. You have if, to learn to ride a bike. You actually have to get on it, you know, and you, you might start with training wheels and someone holding you up, like giving you the support, the environment that you need to succeed. But ultimately, in order for you to learn, you have to do the thing. Yeah. I mean, for me, I remember, I think it was sixth grade. We had, we had typing class, like we had these little calculator, big calculator looking things. And we were doing, you know, the quick brown fox jumped over a lazy dog over and over oh, and over. Yeah, that. And, and I, I can't remember doing anything. And then by the next year, seventh grade, it was gone because instant messaging on AOL was the social domain of all kids at that point. And I learned how to touch type just by doing that. It wasn't, you know, it was not the dr the drills. It was not that class. It was, I was doing it to talk to my friends. So I got good at it. Yeah, there was a reason for you to use the skill. So you learned it. And I think that's, I mean, that's a huge takeaway for anybody in the educational game space is that the learning is not the, it's, I mean, it might be your goal, but it's not the goal of the game. Like no one's like, I'm going to memorize the alphabet. <laughs> you know, we do it. We memorize the alphabet because it's in pursuit of something else we want more. You know, we, we learn the skills that are taught to us in order to achieve some other, some other goal. One of my favorite examples, I was in geometry class and we had to construct like a, a roller coaster and that's not a, not a game per se, but I actually had a reason to apply the formulas to make something cool. And that's what I was interested in. I didn't care about the formulas. I cared about making something cool, but I happened to learn them along the way. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's any better way to look at the, the value of, of games and learning that it gives it gives it a context and, and most traditional you know instruction we, we seem to go out of our way to, to suck all context out of it um, until it's just the bare concept which no one enjoys at all yeah no um, and no one learns no because it's boring um, so that's great so um, I think that's a wonderful place uh, uh, to stop for today um, but before before you go where uh, can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, your work or, uh, you know, but basically, you know, pay attention to what's actually out there with, with the research around this? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. I pretty much live there. <laughs> it's at Kelly N Dunlap, which I'm sure will be in the show notes, but just in case it's K-E-L-L-I-N-D-U-N-L-A-P. Uh, and I'm super, super responsive on there. Happy to help. Uh, you can also check out, uh, I have a, a personal website, which is Dunlap. So D-U-N-L-A-P. And then because when I made this, I was not thinking about like user experience. <laughs> the domain is Dunlap PsyD. And I didn't realize that, you know, there's only like not many people who understand PsyD. So it's <laughs> D-U-N-L-A-P-P-S-Y-D.com. And like most of my research is on there, my talks, my papers, stuff like that. I try to keep it updated. Um, and yeah, if, for, if you're interested in the work that iThrive does, you can go to iThriveGames.org to see all the cool stuff that we're doing there too. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. There's a lot of great resources. Uh, so the, all of that will be, will be there. So if you had to recommend, you, you know, a, a few things that, that you feel are good sources, uh, to read or, or to watch or to consume, you know, what would you recommend? In terms of... Uh, you know, just uh, things related to the space, games, uh, you know, uh, mental health, anything that you think is it would be good for someone who is um, interested in this conversation. Oh, geez. Um, I mean, that's, that's a huge, <laughs> that's like 10 years of my life's work right there. So I'm trying to think of the, the most helpful thing. One would be um, probably Moral Combat, right, by Marky? I mean, if you're specifically looking at violence, that is a very, very solid book. Um, if you're looking for something more around the along the lines of the debate around addiction, uh, I authored a piece that lives on a website called Take This. Take This is a nonprofit organization dedicated to decreasing mental health stigma and increasing mental health support for game players and game makers. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article for them, basically recapping, you know, what 
the whole debate around the World Health Organization gaming disorder is. Like, it goes way, way back in time and brings it all the way forward. Um, selfishly, I think it's one of the most comprehensive, accessible reads out there on the topic. So I, I would highly recommend that. And yeah, I mean, if, there, if there's something in particular, please tweet me, email, just do something, get in contact with me, because I probably have it <laughs> or, or can point you to somebody who can. But I mean, it's it's such a huge space that I can't say like there's one definitive um, thing. Although I, I guess I will give a shout out to, um, you know, Jay McGonigal's Reality is Broken. Mm -hmm. That book definitely had a huge impact on everything I've done, like since it came out. There's like pre-McGonigal and post-McGonigal, Kelly. So um, that's also a, a fantastic place to start. Yeah, that was definitely a watershed moment, I think, for a lot of people in this space. Um, so definitely get that in the show notes as well. But Kelly Dunlap, thank you for coming. This has uh, been extremely informative and a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. Delighted to, to be able to talk. <laughs>